Hello, everybody. My name's Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Hello, everyone. Um, we're in our fourth week, I think that's right, fourth week um, of how to study the Bible. So I really want to jump in just like super fast to the very important things um, that we're going to cover in this lesson. So first things first, who here has seen the movie Titanic? Okay, about half of you. Half of you, that's pretty solid. Um, so... I feel like this is like, it's kind of, it's coming back around. I wrote this intro to this lesson before the sub happened, so it's in no way connected. That was a tragedy. Now we're going to talk about the movie. Um, so I've not seen the movie, The Titanic, but I feel like I have seen it because I've seen the clips. I've seen like, well, I've listened to the soundtrack in part. Obviously, my heart will go on. An American classic, if there ever was one. Um, so I know the gist of the movie. Um, uh, Hannah Kay told me earlier this week that it's on Amazon Prime for a limited time. So if, you're, if you want to watch it and you have three hours, let me know. I'll watch it with you because I haven't seen it. Um, but I was, I was in a group of people recently, in the past couple of months, and we were just talking about the Titanic. I don't know how it came up. I probably started singing it. I don't know. Um, and one of my friends, she's super super sweet. I think that she would probably agree with the fact that sometimes she can be a little bit gullible, right? We all have one of those friends. If you don't have one, you might be that one. Um, but we're in this conversation and we're talking about the Titanic and somebody was like, well, yeah, it's like, it's not historically accurate. And I was like, well, that always happens, you know, when you make a movie like that. And all of a sudden she's like, wait. And all of us are like, Oh no. <laughs> She's like, did the Titanic, did it really happen? Did the Titanic really happen? And I was like, oh no. My sweet friend, she literally did not know that the Titanic was for real. Like she just thought it was the brainchild of some movie producer. And we were all just kind of like, it's just like a moment of silence for her. And I was like, I didn't know that somebody could not know that but she did and it's okay like it's understandable right like people make movies all the time really great stories that tug on your heartstrings stories of tragedy and drama and love and they make movies and a lot of movies are not based on real stories so I get why she thought I don't know if she missed the history class the day they talked about the Titanic but now she knows it was kind of earth-shattering for her um, but she kind of thought like this is a good story and has some good implications for my life. And I have ruthlessly made fun of her for it. But I think that you and I sometimes inadvertently actually, this is, you're like, how is this connected? I think we actually read our Bibles sometimes, like my friend, who I will not name, um, watched the movie Titanic. She thought it was just a story, just a story that someone came up with, and it, and it has some good life lessons, um, but it wasn't rooted in anything real. There wasn't any real context to it. And I think that when you understand the historical context that the Titanic really did happen, it changes how you think about the movie. Because the things that she didn't know, that maybe you do know, I had to look some of these things up, so to be fair, um, that the Titanic was the largest movable man-made object up to that period in time. And that people were like, this technology is amazing, it's unsinkable, all these things. And other significant things, like they didn't have enough lifeboats 
right? We know this. There's only enough lifeboats for a third of the passengers and crew because they're like, this, this thing's not going to sink. And so when you know about those things, it's not just a story about how like love triumphs in tragedy or Celine Dion can really sing. It's like, no, this is a story. This is something we should learn from about human pride and our accomplishments and tragedy and all those things. And so you can see how like something, the Titanic, the historical context adds a layer of like, oh, I think I actually understand what this means more than just a story, more than just actors. And so that's what we're talking about tonight is historical context, not about the Titanic, but about the Bible. So I really want to answer three questions tonight, and we're going to do this in like, I'll talk for a little bit. You guys will just discuss or work through a practice. I'll talk for a little bit because um, we really want this to be hands-on. So the three questions that we're going to cover are, what is historical context? Why does historical context matter? And how do we use historical context? So just as a quick review, week one, we talked about the goal of biblical interpretation, and that is that we would understand the author's intended meaning. So that's always the goal when we read a text from the Bible. We want to understand what was the author intending to say and mean. And the way that we get to that, week two, we talked about observations. Scott talked about how we can look for repeated phrases or words. Um, we can look for metaphors, imagery, word pictures, looking for themes throughout texts, arguments that the author might be making. And so this helps us go to the next step after observation, which is interpretation. So last week, Drew talked about how one of the ways we need to look at the text to be able to interpret it is the literary context. So looking at the paragraphs around the text, looking at the unit of thought, the pericope, which was a new word for me. It's kind of fun to say, honestly. Um, but looking at the unit of thought within a text, looking at the chapter, looking at the book of the Bible it's found in, and then large scale would be like the Testament, old or new, and then the Bible as a whole. So um, this piece that we're talking about tonight, historical context, fits under um, that interpretation piece. This helps us know how to interpret the Bible. So the last step is application, and we'll get to that, but we don't want to jump ahead. Um, so that will come later on in the summer. So question one, what is historical context? So I have a definition for you, lots of blanks to fill in. So try and keep you engaged here. So if I miss one, let me know. So historical context is information about the biblical writer, audience, and any historical cultural elements that help us better understand the text itself. So this is distinctive from literary context, but it should never be divorced from literary context. Um, literary context would be found within the text itself, within the scriptures, and historical context can be within the text, but it can also be outside of the text. So let's kind of break down this definition. Um, information about the biblical writer. This is, anytime we come to a text, this should probably be one of our first questions. We're going to walk through a lot of questions we should ask for historical context. The first one being, who wrote this? Who is the writer? So there are at least 35 writers of the 66 different books in the Bible. So we need to ask which one wrote the book that we're dealing with. That's going to be very insightful for us as we come to historical context. We also need to know what is the writer's background. So this could be things like 
education level, um, their ethnicity, their faith background, because all of those things affect how a writer communicates. Um, we could ask questions like, is this writer a prophet, a poet, a king, a pastor, an apostle, a historical record keeper? Those would all fit under what is the writer's background. So this helps us, for example, um, the gospel writer Luke, we know that he was a historian and a doctor, which I'm like, I, does he have two PhDs? I don't know. He must have been a really smart guy. Um, but we know that he's well-educated. And so when we read the Gospel of Luke, we see a very detailed, oriented account, which is different from Mark or John, because they have different backgrounds, and that affects how they write. And that can help us better understand the meaning of what they're writing. So what is the writer's background? Another good question to ask about the writer is, when did he write, and what was happening at that time? So knowing the time period of a writing is maybe one of the most important pieces of historical context. Um, and knowing what was happening at that time really changes our understanding of the message. Um, so the book of Jonah, who here has ever heard of Jonah? Okay, Jonah and the whale. It's like pretty well known in just culture at large. Um, but the book of Jonah can be kind of confusing unless you understand what's happening at the time. So Israel has been taken over by the empire of Assyria and the Assyrians are very oppressive rulers. And so God calls Jonah to go to the capital city of Assyria, Nineveh, and to preach an opportunity for them to repent, to be spared of judgment. So just with that piece of information, all of a sudden it's like, okay, because of what's happening at the time, I can see why Jonah would not be thrilled about going to basically his captors, capital city, and being like, you guys can be spared from judgment. The Lord is extending grace to you if you repent. That helps us understand the book of Jonah and what's happening at that time. So when did he write and what was happening at that time? Another good question to ask is, what is the relationship between the writer and the audience? This is a big one. Um, so when we look at the Apostle Paul, he's a big author. He contributed to probably 14 books in the New Testament, 13 to 14. And he wrote letters to different churches. And he has a different, unique relationship with each church. So for some churches, he had not met that church. For other churches, he helped found that church. And so he's speaking very clearly, very directly. So his relationship with the church changes how he speaks to them. And that can help provide context for us as we're like, wow, you're speaking really clearly. Like my dad speaks very directly to me, but my uncle's a little bit further removed, so he doesn't speak as directly. So the relationship matters between the writer and the audience. So Another big piece, which this is a little bit harder to discern and takes that literary context piece as well, is why are they writing? So knowing the writer's goal obviously helps us understand what they wrote. The book of Proverbs is difficult to understand and apply if you don't understand the purpose for writing. If you think that the purpose of Proverbs is to provide promises or guarantees about life, it's going to be really confusing and frustrating. But the, the purpose 
of Proverbs is to speak generally about life, to speak proverbially. Um, and that helps us have a better lens for how to understand the book of Proverbs because we know that the purpose is not to provide guarantees, but to speak wisdom about life in general. So this is really helpful. When we think about the prophets, if you ever read the prophets and you're like, man, this is some tough stuff. This is a lot of judgment that uh, these, these prophets are predicting. It helps provide a lens for how we understand their message when we know that their purpose as a prophet is to warn rebellious people to turn and repent to the Lord. That helps us have a context for what they're saying. So we need to know why the author is writing. So those are questions about the biblical writer. That's going to be maybe the chunk of it. But the second piece of that definition is understanding information about the biblical audience. So a question to ask, this is kind of, I'll I'll admit, a bit of a broad question, um, but to ask what context is the audience in? And then beyond that, how does our understanding about the audience, how does this audience shape our understanding of the text? So we apply this, the same principle when we talk about the biblical writer. How does our understanding of the writer, of the audience, shape our understanding of the text? So I'm just, I'm throwing examples at you. You're like, whoa, Proverbs, Jonah, here we are. First and second Corinthians. If you understand that the audience is Christians living in this kind of like, uh, almost like famously sinful city, like people will refer to Las Vegas as like Sin City. Um, that's what Corinth was at the time. It's this really wealthy, um, kind of full of, full of evil city known for that. And there's lots of commerce, but there's also lots of corruption and there's lots of sexual sin. So understanding this is the context that these Christians find themselves in. And Paul speaks, he comes after them hard because they've been so influenced by the context, the culture that they find themselves in. So that really helps us understand why, why is he talking so much about sexual sin? Well, his audience is in a culture and a context where that is a massive struggle in Corinth. So that helps us understand the text when we understand the audience. So some other elements to consider would be, these are, I'm going to lump these all together. They're separate, but they overlap. Um, Other questions to ask would be, where does this take place? So we're talking about the geography. So these are, I know there's like five blanks in a row, so I'll repeat this. But first, where does this take place? And then Secondly, what geographic, so where does this take place, location, social, so that would be um, intertwined with religious, which is the next blank, Um, but what social things are happening, um, what relationships are being affected, so what geographic, social, religious, so that would be not only um, religious in the sense of as it relates to Christianity or Judaism, but what other religious things are happening, and then economic, So you can start to see how these things blend together. Um, Whether there's different classes of people, whether this is really wealthy, economic issues. And then the last blank is, or political issues. So what geographic, social, religious, economic, or political issues affect this writer, audience, and text? Um, I just came back. I also was gone. Um, Alec and I... We're in Poland together for a little while, but I came 
from Poland, from Israel. So I spent two weeks in Israel. It was awesome. It was hot. And I'm really glad to have cheese on hamburgers. So I'm glad to be back. Um, but it was awesome. And I had the chance to see a lot of the places that are described in the Bible where things happen in the Bible. And one of my favorite things that we got to do is we spent some time in Jerusalem. And then we left Jerusalem. And Jerusalem's kind of these mountains. And you drive down and you drive into this wilderness. And there's a parable that Jesus tells that happens in this wilderness. You may have heard of it. It's called the parable of the Good Samaritan. And Jesus tells this story of a man making the same journey that we did. He starts in Jerusalem and he goes down to Jericho. And essentially, Jesus says he gets robbed and beaten by these bandits. No one helps him, not even the Levites or the priests, these people who are uber religious. They don't help him. A Samaritan helps him. So if you're a little bit familiar, you might understand the significance of this. But the geographic, religious, social, even economic issues that play into this parable, when we understand those, it really helps it come to life. So this is what I learned whenever I was out there, that the geography of this road is really important. So Jerusalem is kind of like a semi-dry area, but it's these mountains. So the rain comes in from the sea. If you're a geography major, I'm going to butcher this, so I'm sorry. Um, but the rain comes in from the sea, it hits the mountains, and it, it just can't get over it or something geographic. And so on the other side of the mountain, there's desert. It's wilderness. There's, there's almost no water. Um, so this road from Jerusalem to Jericho is in the desert. So that alone is like... Okay, here's the clue. This is a hard road. I was out there for like 10 minutes, and it was 110 degrees, and it was dry. I, I literally was like, where's the water? I need water. I've been out here for 10 minutes, and like everything is so dry. So another thing to know about this road is that because there's so little water, the roads all follow these little streams because it's the only water, and there's these mountains. So imagine mountain stream road. So you're walking on the road and that means that the road is very narrow. I watched this guy walk on his mule, walk on the road with his mule, and he's just snaking down this little path. So this is a geographic issue. The road is very narrow. So when Jesus says that this man is going to Jericho, his listeners already know, one, this is a really hard trip. You're going through the desert. Two, this is a very narrow road. So when it says that the Levite and the priest pass by him, it's less like they're on the other side of a 10-lane highway in Houston and more like they're, like, stepping over him. It's, like, it's skinny. Like, it's a skinny road that we saw. So that's like, whoa, okay. They're not just like, oh, I didn't see you there. They're, like, stepping over him. They're seeing him very close. Um, and then beyond just, like, the geography the religious and social elements of this are that when Jesus says a Samaritan helped him, that would have been really shocking to the audience at the time because Jews did not associate with Samaritans. There's an ethnic divide. Basically, Jews thought that Samaritans were like half-breed Jews. So there's a class and a social divide between these groups. And so it's very countercultural when Jesus says that the Samaritan is the one who helps this man. So all of the information I just gave you is historical context. And you could get some of what Jesus is trying to say 
without that. But when you have the, the other elements, the geography, the social customs, the religious customs, it really helps you understand, okay, this is what Jesus is trying to communicate. That this is such a countercultural way of living. That basically this man loved his enemy and was caring for this man. So that is just an example of how some of the geography um, and historical context questions help us understand what's happening in a text. So we're going to take a discussion break. There's two questions that you have. Um, they shouldn't take you very long, so I'm going to give you four minutes to talk with the people kind of in your row, or you can turn around, whatever, two or three. Um, we'll take four minutes, do your two discussion questions, and then we'll come back. Okay. So as we're talking about historical context, we like these questions are kind of designed to prompt us to think about, yeah, how often do I think about these things? Um, and I'll say, like, for some texts um, and some books of the Bible, more historical context is needed. Some things, it's, it can be clear without a large amount of historical context, and some things, it's like, I have no idea what is going on here. I need to really know the historical context. So um, when we think about things that have contributed to our understanding of historical context, if you grew up in the church, that's going to contrib contribute to your historical context. Um, if you do a lot of extra research, if you're a history buff and you happen to know about Near Eastern ancient cultures, like that's going to affect your historical context levels. Um, and it's not so much like, oh gosh, I'm really low. It's more of just recognizing what, what do I have already that I can bring to this and where can I grow in this? So now that we've talked about the first question, what is historical context? I want to talk a little bit about why historical context matters, which I hope I've, my, my whole goal is to literally persuade you that this matters and that it's worth it. So I'll just tell you straight up, I'm trying to persuade you. Uh, and I hope I've done a little bit of that already with some examples. But this, this is the core principle for why historical context matters. This is from um, some guys that Drew quoted, Duval and Hayes. They have a book called Grasping God's Word. It sits on our desk, and Randy and I use it often. Um, but this is what they say. I think it's really helpful. The way that we approach the Bible should match how God gave us the Bible. So I'll say that again. The way that we approach the Bible should match how God gave us the Bible. So the next question would be, how did God give us the Bible? Um, the way in which the Bible was given to us is that the Holy Spirit inspired specific people in time, in specific places, to write specific things to specific people. And there are... It, it doesn't mean that it only applies to specific people, but that is the way in which it was given to us. And so for us to be able to properly understand it, our approach needs to match how God gave it to um, the original people, to the original Christians, to his, to his people. Um, and that means that we need to know the context of what was happening when God gave us the Bible to be able to understand and apply it correctly. So for our interpretation, as we're drawing meaning from the Bible, we come to the text, we're going to interpret it. We're going to observe, interpret, and apply. For an interpretation of the Bible, of any biblical text, to be valid, it must be consistent with the historical, cultural context of that text. 
this is, I don't know if I can overstate this. For our interpretation of any biblical text, our interpretation must be consistent with the historical cultural context of that text. So if you were here a couple weeks ago, you heard from Scott, the wise sage. Um, he was doing my job a year and a half ago, and he did it for a really long time. And when I was a student at the table, he said this, and he still says it. He probably said it when he taught, um, but it's, it's lodged in my brain that one of the things we don't get to do as Christians is open up the Bible, read a text, and then go, hmm. I wonder what that means to me. We don't get to go from reading the text straight to what this applies and means for me. We have to go through this process of observing and interpreting it correctly on its terms. So you and I don't get to arbitrarily decide what the Bible means because it was given to a specific people in a specific time, in a specific place. So for us to rightly understand the Bible, our interpretation has to be consistent with the original context. So this might be overstating it, but I don't think it is. If you don't consider the historical context, without historical context, you and I, the modern readers, get to determine the meaning for the Bible. We can kind of make, make it say what we want. Um, but with historical context, it's the author who gets to determine the meaning based on their understanding. And that's the goal. Remember, we want to understand the author's intended meaning. That's what we want to get at. And that's why historical context matters. We need to interpret it correctly, and to do that, we need literary context and historical context. So I'm going to hopefully demonstrate this to you, but you're going to do it together, and I'm intentionally setting you up a little bit to fail, to demonstrate something. So here's what we're going to do. We are going to practice interpreting a text without historical context first, and then we're going to do one with. So if you know about this text already, Amazing, you can share that with your group. And if not, just go with face value, okay? So here's what I want you to do. I'm gonna explain what I want you to do in your groups and then I'll let you loose. Here's what I want you to do. First step, observe. I'm gonna have you read 1 Peter 2.18. And I want you to make, as a group, three or four observations about the text. This can be really basic. An observation is something that's true from the text. Um, so it doesn't have to be like, don't just jump straight to theological, like basic observations are good. So we start with that. Then we're going to move to the second step, which is what Drew talked about, the literary context. So first, start with one verse, make observation. Then you're going to read the larger context, 1 Peter 2, 11 through 21. If you need to change or add to your observations after you read the literary context, do that. Okay. The next step would be historical context, and it's blank because I'm going to tell you it afterwards. So this is where I'm setting you up a little bit. But I'm telling you, so it's okay. Um, the next step is interpretation. So I want you to go from your observation to, in a sentence, what does 1 Peter 2.18 mean? You're not going to get everything, but just what does it mean? Then application, which we haven't covered necessarily, but I trust that you can, you can go from a meaning to an application. So there's one meaning, many applications, so just choose an application, okay? So observe, literary context, change any of your observations if you need to. Interpretation, what does it mean in a sentence? Application. Then we're going to come back 
and I'm going to show you why historical context matters. Okay? So take uh, seven to ten minutes. We'll do that, and we'll come back. Go. All right. Go ahead and come back. Come back. All right. So those of you who were here in, I think we did this in the fall, First Peter. I believe Alexia taught through this text. Um, you're like the people who like read ahead, and the teacher's like, okay, pipe down until I make my lesson. So just hang on. Um, let's walk through this process as if you don't know. And if you don't know, that's going to blow your mind. Okay, so first, some observations. Somebody, raise your hand or else it'll get crazy, but an observation about this text that you just read the text or you read the literary context to sell, tell me something that's true about this text. An observation. Hallie. Uh, yes, so talking about the relationship between a slave and a master. What else is true? Is this that reverent fear of God? <coughs> Say that again. Have reverent fear of God? Yes, so that's literary context bringing it in. It says that we do this out of fear of the Lord. What else? We're called to submit. Okay. Anything else? Yes, this applies to both good and cruel masters. Talking about this relationship between slaves and masters. Okay, anything else? The way of suffering from, from both the good side of suffering and the bad side of suffering. Yes, so once you read the literary context, it's talking about suffering, the context here. Um, so literary context is it's kind of helping, it's changing our observations beyond just the text. So... Some observations that I made. The Christians in 1 Peter, the audience, either had slaves or they were slaves. Another observation, like Gavin talked about, some of the masters were cruel, some of them were good. Um, and that these masters, or the slaves, were called... Uh, sorry, someone's calling me. Um, that these slaves were called to submit to their masters. Right. So these are observations. The literary context... We know that Peter is talking to Christians and he's saying that this concerns your witness to unbelievers. So he's saying you're, you're in an unbelieving context and so how you handle these things it is a witness, good or bad, to the unbelievers around you. Uh, Peter's telling them to submit to human authority. That's what Taylor said. Um, and then, like Caleb was talking about, he, he says that enduring suffering actually brings glory to God and that we follow in Jesus' footsteps when we experience suffering for righteousness. Okay, so those are all literary context and just regular observation about this text. So here is an interpretation that I think would be consistent with the text based on what we have observed. We should submit to authority even when it's hard because it glorifies God and it makes us more like Jesus. So the Christians that Peter's writing to, this is the meaning that they should draw out from this. So from that interpretation, which I think is consistent with the text, here is an application. Remember, one meaning, many applications. Here's one. Slaves should submit to their masters because submission to authority glorifies God. Okay. If you're not sweating because it's hot, you should be sweating now because we're talking about slavery. Right? This is like, hold on. <laughs> okay. What are we talking about? Some of your translations say servants. Um, some of them say slaves. So if you have the servant one, you're like, what are you talking about? But there's a difference in translations there. And you can see that one of the ways to interpret 
the text to understand the meaning and then the application, how it applies to us, is that it's okay to have slaves and that slaves should submit to masters regardless of whether they have cruel masters or good masters. So you can see how that would be very problematic, right? You can see like, I, I actually don't agree with that. I do not think slavery is okay, right? So you guys, some of you, I heard you guys talking about it, so I'm really glad that you know this. This is an important piece. But this is where historical context comes in and helps us not misapply a text. So this is the historical context piece. When Peter says slaves, he's not talking about the type of slavery that came to your mind or the slavery that you learned about when we talk about um, Africans being brought over to North America, to the Caribbean, all these places um, where someone would own another human being and mistreat them and degrade them and treat them as subhuman. That's the slavery that we think of when you say slaves. That's the image that I have in my mind, right? But that's not the image that Peter has in his mind when he's talking about slaves. When he's talking about slaves, the context here is much more similar to an employee-employer relationship. Who went to work today? Look at you guys, oh, so proud of you. Um, you guys are working hard. So you went to work and you have some type of agreement with your boss that you will provide service and they will provide payment of some form. So you have a contract, you have a relationship and this is what Peter's talking about. So Peter's not saying that owning people is okay because when he says slaves, he's not talking about owning people. He's speaking on the importance of submitting to authority in various relationships, we know the literary context, and submitting to authority as it relates to your job, whether you have a good boss or a bad boss. That's what Peter's speaking to. And he's saying that even when it's hard, we're called to witness to who God is and to suffer well for the Lord. So this comes back to our core principle. Anyone who interpreted that scripture as endorsing slavery would be misapplying this text. How do we know that? Because that interpretation would be inconsistent with the historical cultural context of the time. So this is, this is your blank. This is why historical context matters so much. It helps keep us, it doesn't totally prevent, there's a way to, to mess things up if you want to. Um, it helps keep us from misunderstanding and then misapplying the Bible. So, like we said before, there's certain books and genres within the Bible um, where understanding the historical context is more important. You can under understand the difference between Jesus' command to love your neighbor and Peter's conversation about slaves. Love your neighbor is arguably more clear, and the slavery conversation, we need more historical context. So that's not to say that all biblical texts need the equal amount of historical context for clear interpretation, but you start to see if we have historical context, it helps keep us from misapplying and misunderstanding the Bible. So I hope you're with me. I hope you think it's important. So last question, how do we use historical context? I've actually, we've been doing it. We've been walking through the process. Um, and that first one is that we need to ask good questions. So all of those questions we ran through um, when we were talking about what historical context is, those are the questions we should ask when we come to a biblical text. So, who is the writer? When did he write? What was happening at the time? What's the purpose? All those questions that you filled in the blanks, 
Those are questions we should ask. That's the first step to understanding how to use historical context is to ask good questions. So if we ask good questions, we need to also know how to get good answers. Because there are lots of bad answers online. If you just Google things, Wikipedia, sometimes they're right. And sometimes there's like a person on the other end who's messing with you. So we need to know how to get good answers. One of the ways or the places we can go to get good answers is the text itself. So sometimes the text itself answers the questions we have about it. So in 1 Peter, if you read the first couple of verses, the answers to questions, who is the writer and who is he writing to, Peter actually answers for you. He says, this is me, Peter. I'm writing to Christians in Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. So the text itself is answering some of those questions. And this is true when we do literary context. The more you read of the text, the better idea you'll have of the historical context. So the text itself can be a, a source for answers to good questions. Another place would be other biblical passages. So this is kind of a fun thing. Drew and I were talking about this, that sometimes the Bible is its own historical context. It gives you the historical context in another passage. So if you read the prophets, again, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, Amos, all those, the historical context for what's happening at that time is actually found in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. Those are historical genre books. Randy's going to talk about that later this summer, how we understand those. But that's the context for what's happening in the prophets. So when you, it's like, oh, this, who's this king? Who's King Hezekiah? Who's this king? You can actually know by looking at other biblical passages in those Chronicles and Kings books. So this is true in the New Testament, too. Stories um, from the Old Testament and quotes from the New Testament are often included in the New Testament. So this is where you can start to see literary context and historical context should never be divorced. They should always be blending together. So other biblical passages. Um, another place we can go is outside resources. Okay. Um, and I'll be honest, of all the things that we talk about this summer, we want you to come away feeling like, I can do this. And historical context is one of the ones that I would say is a little bit harder um, and takes a little more practice and is more dependent on time and money and effort. So literary context, you can read more text. I promise you can do it. Historical context, it takes a little more practice because it relies partially on outside resources, but I have some resources for you that are really accessible. So I've just listed some of these out. They've been really helpful to me. Um, one of them is called The Bible Project, and it's on YouTube. Who here has ever watched a video on YouTube? Okay, some of you are lying. Um, you've probably all watched a video on YouTube. You know how to access it, and if you type in Bible Project Luke or Bible Project Galatians, a video will come up. It's probably going to be less than 10 minutes. And they walk through the historical context of the book. They're going to give you kind of an overview, a summary, some important things to know as you read. It's really helpful. And it's like in this like illustration style. When you get to the end of the video, it zooms out and it's this awesome picture. It's really cool. So you should check that out. They're really accessible all on YouTube. Another resource for you is Right Now Media. So all of you can have access to Right Now Media through Sunnybrook. If you don't know how to do that, I'll tell you how. It's, it's through the website. It's really easy. You can all have access to that. 
And there's lots of books of the Bible studies. And so the first video of those studies is often an overview of that book, and it walks through historical context. And if you're like, okay, I'm in 1 Peter 2.18, I really think I need to know the historical context, you could go watch the video on 1 Peter 2, and they're going to talk about historical context. So that's a good resource. And it's free. So is Bible Project. I'm, I'm, all of these are almost free. So I'm a big fan of free. Um, this one is not. So you can talk to Drew about it. This was his suggestion. Um, there's something called the IVP Bible Background Commentary. And essentially, it's one book with sections for every book of the Bible that gives you the historical context and rundown for every book all in one. So it's on Amazon. I bet you guys have heard of that. Um, and you can have all the books of the Bible in one. We also have one at Sunnybrook if you don't want to buy it. Um, another resource would be study Bibles. So several of you guys probably have study Bibles or know what that is. Um, this is not a study Bible. I should have brought mine. Um, but a lot of times study Bibles will have a section at the beginning of the book that kind of gives you the rundown, gives you the context, all the things. Taylor has one. She is, oh, perfect. Here we go. This is a beautiful Bible. First Timothy, introduction to First Timothy, okay? Woo, look at this Bible. Uh, looking good. So it's going to give you some information. That's going to be really helpful. Thanks, Taylor. Um, for the, the context of what's happening in First Timothy. So that's really helpful. A little bit more expensive, but... I bet you could find like a used one and used ones still work. Um, so the last one is us, your ministers. A big part of our job is to help you learn how to read and understand the Bible for yourselves. If you come out of college and you know how to read and understand the Bible for yourself, praise God. That is a, such a win. That's what we want you to do. That's the goal of this study. Um, and so if you ever come to Sunnybrook and you walk in the offices, you will see books and books and books. And they're almost all about the Bible or Christian life. So if you have a question or you're like, hey, I'm going to read Luke. I'd love to know about the historical context. There are at least seven books that you can borrow that we would love to help walk you through. What does it look like to understand the context of this book? So we want to help you with that. Yeah, come borrow our books. So... If you're like, oh, this feels like a lot of work, it is. It kind of is. Um, but here's the secret. Here's the silver bullet. You're going to be so disappointed. Um, the secret to being good at using historical context is number one, time, and number two, effort. There is actually no silver bullet. You cannot just immediately get good at using historical context. Um, but over time, daily reading the word, over time, you're going to know the historical context in Kings when you read Isaiah. Over time, you're going to know when they're talking about Exodus in the New Testament, you're going to know that because over time you read these things, you have a better understanding of those things. The more time you spend in context like this, whether it's a large group setting, um, college ministry, church, hearing the word of God explained, the historical context explained, that goes into your brain, hopefully most of it, and you can pull from that whenever you read for yourself. So this is true not only of the Bible. If you want to get good at finishing marathons, the only way to do it is to put time and effort into learning to run, doing it consistently, and I've heard doing it with other people is really helpful. And I think the same is true for reading and understanding the Bible and using historical context to do it. So I'll say this, that the more ownership you take, of knowing and reading your Bible on your own, 
the more you will get better at knowing and reading the Bible on your own. That's what Drew said. The more you take ownership of learning, learning this and getting better at this, the better you will get at this. And I just, I cannot encourage you more to not do it solo, to do it with us, whether you go to Sunnybrook or you go to a different church, to do it in small group settings, to do it in one-on-one settings, when you're getting coffee with somebody and you're talking about the Bible, when you're reading it for yourself, you will get better at this over time and with effort. And the reason that we're doing this whole study and the reason that we spent 50 minutes talking about historical context, that really is like, whew, like Alec was saying, I hope this is not dry. The reason that I really, I am excited to tell you about these things and the reason we are even doing this study is not because we want you to be really good at like interpreting just a text. This is not an English class. We don't want you to just have knowledge for knowledge's sake, but we actually want you to understand the Bible more so that you can know the Lord more. And when we know the Lord, we are transformed by him. That's the goal. The goal is to be more like Jesus as we know God and his word more clearly. And historical context helps us do that. So that is our hope, and that's my goal. And I hope that a little bit tonight you got a little bit of understanding of what historical context is, why it matters, and how we use it. And if you have a lot of questions, I don't have a lot of answers, but I know where to point you, to Randy. So um, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Maybe. That's true. Um, so we really do want to help you with this and, and hope that it's encouraging and practical for you guys. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll wrap up. Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you just for the chance to be together, even though it's hot, um, and to better understand, hopefully, um, what it means to read and understand your word, to know who you are, and to know how to respond in faith to you. Um, Father, I pray that our goal would never be just knowledge to have knowledge, um, but that we, we really would seek to know you um, in the way in which you've revealed yourself in your word. Um, and so I pray you would stir, in up, stir up in us a desire to know you in your word, that you would um, make us diligent people who are excited um, and whose delight is in your word, um, and that you would change us to be more and more like you um, as we are more and more obedient by the power of your spirit. We trust all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.